Welcome to another episode of the Property Nomad podcast. And today we're going to be talking about electrical bits and pieces because there's some major changes that are coming up to the regulations as of the 1st of April 2021. And in order to explain about that, I'm delighted to be joined by two people from NAPIT, uh, the N-A-P-I-T. It's the National Association of Professional Inspectors and Testers. Started out in 1992 as a trade association and continues to represent electrical contractors who specialize in inspection and testing. From NAPIT, uh, joining me today are Charlotte Lee, who is the Head of External Affairs, and also Frank Bertie, who is the Chief Technical Officer as well. It's going to be an action-packed episode full of great content to help you run your portfolios more smoothly. Uh, Charlotte and Frank, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you for allowing us to join you. So much to get through, and I suppose, first of all, is this, this change in, in regulation happening in well, on the 1st of April 2021. Can you explain what exactly that is and how that's going to impact people moving forward? Yeah, so I'll I'll kick off with the regulation piece, um, if that's all right, Rob. And and Frank, as he as you said, is our chief technical officer and and has all the technical know-how for us. So um, as you've said, from the first of April, 2021, that is an important change. Um, but the regulations themselves actually came into force on the first of July, 2020, for all new specified tenancies, um, and it will apply to all specified tenancies, as you've said, from the first of April, 2021. And what the regulations require landlords to do now is to have an electrical safety report in place um, prior to, well, from the 1st of July um, last year, it was prior to any new tenancies coming in. Um, and, then, and then from the 1st of April, it'll be to all existing tenancies. But that electrical safety report in, in our language is, and, um, and what the electricians will refer to it as is an electrical installation condition report. And they're required to be done at least every five years uh, by a qualified and competent electrical inspector and tester. And the landlord needs to keep a copy of that report and give a copy of that report to their tenant. Um, one of the, 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 the challenges that we've been hearing and that we've faced is if that report is unsatisfactory, so the report will have either a satisfactory outcome or an unsatisfactory outcome. And if it's unsatisfactory, which will mean that it's got certain codes on it, so um, an electrical inspector will um, inspect and test the installate electrical installation in the property, and it will um, list a number of codes based on the observations they find. Um, and Frank will go through what those codes mean um, in a bit more detail. But what they'll ultimately um, give you is whether the uh, report is satisfactory or unsatisfactory. Now, if that report is unsatisfactory, the landlords, according to the regulations, have 28 days uh, to make any um, amends, so to, to do the required works or the further investigation work um, and, and get written confirmation information that that work has been completed and following that the landlords then have to give a copy of that report, unsatisfactory report with the written confirmation documents appended to that report to show that the work's being done they have to give that to their tenant but they also have to give that to their local housing authority 
Um, and if, if the report's satisfactory, there's no requirement to give it to their local housing authority. But if it's unsatisfactory, then, then they do have to, to send those documents to the, to the local housing authority to, to, to demonstrate that the installation wasn't safe, but it now is. Um, and what we mean by written confirmation is an electrical installation certificate or a minor electrical works installation certificate, um, which will have all the details about the work that's been done and the test results to demonstrate that the installation is now safe. So those are the written confirmation documents you need. Um, but I, I think I better hand over to Frank, who will be able to give some information about what you would find on the EICR and, and how that would sort of lead to a satisfactory or unsatisfactory outcome. So, so when, when you uh, do receive the uh, electrical installation condition report, uh, and if it does turn out to be unsatisfactory, it'll be for a number of reasons. And uh, with the observations, we have uh, three codes that class it as unsatisfactory. And the first one, which is the most dangerous one, um, which is the C1. And in our um, documentation software and our uh, code breakers book, which we can touch on later, that C1 is, we use a, a traffic light system, so the C1 is classed as a red, so it's the most serious um, uh, situation where we normally refer to it as it's a case of uh, it's an instance where someone can get an electric shock or um, it could cause a fire. It's something that needs to be immediately corrected because of the serious nature of uh, the situation. And the person carrying out the inspection should contact the person ordering the work, the landlord or the letting agent, to make sure that um, serious uh, instance is uh, corrected by either switching the circuit off or making that part of the circuit that is dangerous um, uh, safe for the, the tenant and for the property. Then we go into the second one, which is a C2, and that, that one's classed as um, an amber, which is potentially dangerous. Um, it's not as serious as the first one, but it is in a situation where a potential fault can, uh, if, if it does develop, then that makes it a serious issue. Now, that could be a case of um, in, in properties, you've got, uh, you, you're required to have earth and bond in, in the property. And if that isn't in place, it is a serious issue within the property, but it's not immediately dangerous. Another fault has to develop to make the installation unsafe. So that's why it's potentially dangerous. So if anything happened, it would increase it to a serious nature. Then we have the FI, which is for further investigation works. And that is where um, the inspector, when they're carrying out the work, cannot determine if the observation is either a C1, which is immediately dangerous, or a C2, potentially dangerous. But uh, the, the feeling of that observation is it has to be further investigate to see where it is um, because they, they class as um, either a dangerous or potentially dangerous situation so it has to be looked into. Now that could be a circuit which they, um, the inspector can't find and that could be uh, that circuit could have damaged or uh, broken accessories where things are exposed and can be touched and people get a shock or cause a fire. And if the inspector can't find them, that's why it needs to be a further investigation to find out what that is. And as Charlotte says, any of those codes, um, the in inspector or the landlord has 28 days to correct the works uh, to make sure the installation has brought the standard uh, for safety. Uh, the only way it would extend past the 28 days if it, when the work's been carried out and further investigation work or further remedial work needs to be carried out, 
is then highlighted during the investigation within the property that can be extended to carry out more work in there. But the initial report has to be correct within 28 days. Interesting stuff. There's quite a few things that you've both highlighted there. There's a lot on regulation, a lot on the actual technical aspect of it as well. I appreciate that we could talk about electrical certificates all day long, but covering podcast purposes is a bit difficult to show someone what it is. So I just recommend obviously getting in touch with yourselves or at least having a Google of what one would look like. That being said, if you're a responsible landlord and landlady, you should already be familiar with them because you should have them in the first place. When we just touch on tenancies, um, Charlotte, just going back to it. So for some people that are going to be listening to this, uh, are going to be operating uh, houses of multiple occupation. They've had that requirement since I think 2007 to, to have this condition report. So when you say all tenancies, I think the biggest change, as you say, from July and you know April 2021 is this now applies to all tenancies, whether it's buy-to-let, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's where the sort of the big things come in a lot of buy to let landlords have not had it before now they've got to get it done um but it's all for it's all for good reason i think this is one of those things that the government have done that i'll give i'll give a thumbs up because i think it's, it's something that makes people safer um what, what's your views of it what's been the industry reaction to to these changes well just before before I answer that question, Rob, one thing that I think is really interesting is that these regulations themselves actually repealed the previous houses of multiple occupation legislation, so that houses of multiple occupation are covered within these these regulations now, the electrical safety standards in the private rented sector regulations, England, of course, just England only. Um, but um, it, it, and they and the. the the officials or the regulators did that um, to ensure um, that sort of it from an enforcement point of view, it would all be able to be enforced on the same standards. So HMOs have to do the within 28 days rule, et cetera, et cetera, which it wasn't as it wasn't it didn't wasn't the same under the previous regulations. But you're right. They now they basically cover anybody who rents a property and pays for the privilege of doing so to to a landlord should, you know, are, are, are pretty much covered by by these regulations. But there is there is a list of excluded um tenancies within the regulations themselves um, there's a there's a schedule um, and so social housing aren't, aren't covered and care homes and, and student accommodation aren't covered um, but you know private rented housing in general it very much is um, but from from our point of view um, and we've we've been communicating with our members about this for a long time in terms of where's the most risk and the feedback we had we received was that 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 the the most dangerous electrical installations that our members were finding in general or that the largest percentage of those were in privately rented properties so you know we are we we are very pleased that these have come in and you know in Scotland they were introduced in 2006 so we're, we're, we're five years behind Scotland and Wales haven't done anything on this yet. No, no legislation um, to require um, electrical safety checks in this vein, although we understand they are looking at doing so and working towards it. Um, but, yeah, we, we are we are very um, pleased that they were introduced, um, although obviously under the circumstances, um, you know, they, they could have been introduced in an easier year. Um, and um, we have been getting quite a lot of concern, both from our members who are concerned about entering properties, um, but also from landlords in terms of how to 
comply with these regulations amidst the pandemic, amidst the lockdowns, um, and, and when their tenants feel vulnerable. So um, we, we have been communicating to our members and to, to landlords and letting agents as best we can, the sort of reasonability clause that the government have um, that, that's in the legislation. Um, and effectively what we've been hearing because people have been calling for an extension to the 1st of April deadline, but the government's position seems to be very much landlords are legally required to ensure that the houses they provide tenants are safe. Um, that is still the case. Um, under this lockdown, so the January lockdown, um, tradespeople are still allowed to work in people's homes under COVID secure guidelines. Um, but ultimately, um, if you as the landlord can prove, and by prove, they mean keep written confirmation that you've tried um, to, to get an electrical inspector to do the work or to get access to the property from the tenant, but they won't allow that because they're either clinically extremely vulnerable or they're shielding or they're isolate, you know, all those reasons that are, per are completely valid, of course they are, um, or the inspector doesn't wish to because they're concerned and you can't find somebody else and you've tried those sort of reasonable excuses, they will, um, you know, all of the guidance is, is pointing to that is acceptable and do the best you can and get it done as soon as you can in a reasonably practical, safe way. Um, so I think that's sort of an important um, point really to, to, to get across that if, you, if you're struggling to comply, you're not going to get hit over the head with a hammer by the local authority. You know, the, the, local land, uh, the government are encouraging local authorities to be pragmatic, to take risk-based approaches, um, to look for that reasonability clause and landlords just need to show that they have, they have tried reasonably hard. You know, they, they, they need to take a reasonable effort to do, to do, to get access. And if they can't, then, you know, that, that, that is okay um, until they can do so. Um, Frank, just uh, switching briefly over to the, the certification. As I mentioned, it's difficult to uh, sort of explain it too intricately on, on, on podcast format, but I was looking for our electrical safety things this morning uh, just to get familiar with them, uh, to be honest. I've got various different documents, some condition reports and some from like building certificate bits and pieces from when we've converted places what does this report look like and, and what are the things that people need to be looking out for what sections of the report do people need to have intense focus on the um the form for the um electrical safety standard is the uh, electrical installation condition report and that's what's used within the electrical industry uh, for reporting on the condition of existing uh, properties whether that is rented or uh, commercial industrial properties, it doesn't matter what it is, there's a version of that. And it's based on, as is stated in the uh, the PRS regulations, it refers to BS 7671 2018, which is the 18th edition of the wire regulations. And within that, um, that, that standard, there is um, uh, model forms which are laid out in the standard. And uh, what, what you'll find within the industry um, uh, people um, and organisations create their version of the form. We create one for our members, which is badged up as NAEP uh, for our members, and other organisations do the, do the same. And um, uh, individual electricians and inspectors can also make their own forms based on the model forms or use other software providers to uh, 
density these forms. Um, and a lot of times they are electronic, either on um, uh, laptops, desktops, uh, tablets, or uh, you still have the um, old NCR carbon copy uh, paper formats of the um, uh, reports that can be issued as well. So there's a different variety. Uh, so not every form will look the same when it comes in front of a landlord or a letting agent. It will, will occur a different format, but it's all got to be based on the model form. So it has the various different sections on it. And within the um, SIM 671, it has the, the, the ones in part six of all of the different standards. And the electrical insulation condition report has um, each section in the model form um, does uh, bases on um, sections which are A, B, C, D. And the most important one for anyone looking at it is section E, which gives the summary of the condition of the installation. And that is the section which will be on the front page of the document that states whether it is satisfactory or unsatisfactory. And um, within the, the standard BSM 601, the criteria for that form, this, that status must be on the front page of any report that is issued. They clearly indicate to the, the user um, that the condition of the installation is in one or two formats satisfactory or unsatisfactory, and things will be dealt with. And it lists, um, it goes down uh, into section uh, section K, where the observations on the existing installation are referred to. That's where the observation codes, the C1s for um, immediately dangerous, uh, C2 for potentially dangerous, and FI will be listed. There is another one that gets listed is uh, C3, which is improvement recommended. That, that is where you have a satisfactory report. So that will be um, on the colour coding system as a green. So it's, uh, it comes under satisfactory. But that um, uh, is where there's new regulations being introduced um, and previous installations, which are not deemed to be unsafe, but improvements can be made to increase the safety of the installation. It doesn't have to be done. It's something that could be done in the future. The other forms you'll find is when any work has been carried out. So as you touched on, when you do conversions uh, or you rewire the property, do things like that, you have an electrical installation certificate, which is certifying the installation in compliance with the current edition of the standard. And currently we are on the 18th edition. And so any new electrical work has to comply with the standard and an electrical installation certificate will be issued for, for those new works. And any new works like that as well will have to, in the domestic sector and as a private rent sector falls into that, that work would need to be notified to the local authority uh, within England and Wales. So um, the, um, when the work is carried out, um, a notification will be issued to the local authority and to the, um, the uh, owner of the property um, as a building compliance certificate, they say the work has been done and it complies with the building uh, regulations. So anything the work is done, new work is done, that's got to be issued. The other one we come across is a minor electrical installation work certificate, which is normally used for uh, alterations to existing circuits. And sometimes that does fall under notifications as well, and that would trigger the uh, issuing of uh, a building compliance certificate as well which would, the notification gets sent to the local uh, authority and also the uh, owner of the property would receive a copy of that building compliance certificate as well. 
What's interesting to, to note, Rob, I think, uh, in, in after the sort of explanation of those certificates is um, an electrical installation certificate, so an EIC rather than an EICR, which is the electrical installation um, condition report, an electrical installation certificate can be used instead of an EICR if the house has undergone a full rewire. Um, so if, if you've had a full rewire of your property within the last five years and you've got your electrical installation certificate to demonstrate that that's been done, that will that that can be used um, as your as to demonstrate you've met the, the regulations. But if you've got an electrical installation certificate for just a portion of the house um, and doesn't cover everything, it's not a complete rewire, then that's not valid. You will have to have a fully ICR carried out. Okay, and uh, I guess this is a, a rookie question. So I, I'm, the reason for this question is I, I know the answer already. And of course, both of you do as as well. But if someone's obtaining their first property, they've never done this before. They, they're buying their first property and they they realise that they need to get an electrician out to do these reports. Uh, a, a competent, qualified person. If I'm a novice landlord, how how do I know? How would I know that person is is competent to do the electrical certifications? Well, we'll look look at that side of it. The um, the requirements we're looking for that. So, a qualified and competent person has to have um, adequate uh, public liability insurance up to two million. They have to have professional indemnity insurance for two hundred fifty thousand because they're offering a professional opinion on the status of the condition of the electrical installation in terms of electrical safety. Uh, they have to have a qualification in the current wiring regulations, and currently that is. Uh, BS 761-2018. They also have to have a qualification in pure inspection and testing of electrical installations. And uh, these different organisations offer different uh, versions of that certificate, but it has to have um, covered pure inspection and testing. Then they have to have two years' experience in carrying out uh, pure inspection and testing work as well. Now, within uh, within NAPA, we've got our electrical inspector um, register where... Um, that's available for a search, and everyone listed on that register complies with that, the requirements of the PRS regulations. They can carry out inspection and testing. Now, if the uh, uh, landlords letting agents use someone on um, such a register as that, um, they know the people will meet those requirements. If they don't use someone on uh, a register, the, the landlord has to go through the checks of that competent person to make sure they meet the criteria for carrying that work is then the onus is then on the landlord to uh, appoint an appropriate person on that basis. Whereas if we use a register, those people are checked, they can carry out the work, we assess them against that, uh, the work they are doing, and make sure they comply with all the different um, um, requirements within the um, uh, BSM-611 and the PRS requirements. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, Rob, because um, obviously the government have cr produced guidance documents on, on the regulations. Mm -hmm. And one of their questions is specifically around how to find somebody. And they give two options. So they, they say, you know, to find a... To, to check if a person is, is competent or qualified, the landlords can either uh, check if the inspector is a member of a competent person scheme. So as, as Frank just said, you know... Um, NAPIT are such a one one um, competent person scheme and, and we have a, a, a list but also they could the other option is to require the inspector to sign us a, a checklist um, certif 
certifying their competence, including their experience and then the qualifications and and insurance that Frank just went through. Um, So, you know, the, the government guidance really is either use somebody who's been checked already and, and, and you know you you know they're competent because they've been um, certified by um, by a competent person scheme or you should do this checklist and they should sign that you know it's not good enough to just be told yes I can do this yes I'm competent you know if you're not using somebody registered you need to get that checklist and, and get it signed so that as the landlord themselves they've got some protection to say well I did ask this and, and they signed, you know, they signed to say they had it. So, um, you know, and, and that's sort of the advice we would give, you know, either use somebody on a list, on the on the, on a certification body register or, or get that checklist and, and get it signed. Absolutely. And that's, uh, I suppose that's from a, approaching that from a landlord's point of view, if you're self-managing. And of course, if you're not self-managing, you've got a good lettings agent, you know, you would have vetted your lettings agent. They you know, should have been in business for X amount of year or however you want to do that. And then they would have their list of people because if obviously things are going wrong from their point of view, their reputation, you know, they wouldn't be in business anyway. So two ways to approach that. Um, something that just come into my mind, you spoke about your C1s, your C2s, possibly you know, C3s on, on a report, etc. You get a report like that and you've got 28 days, as you say, to, to rectify those issues uh, to get it sorted. If you are, if a lettings agent is managing your property, does the lettings agent have to let the local authority know that those works have been done or do they pass the landlord a certificate and then the landlord's got to do the legwork? How, how does that work? So it doesn't actually specify how that should work in the regulations. So really that would be an arrangement between the landlord and the letting agent. But you're right to flag it, Rob, because um, you know landlords should be asking that question to know because ultimately they are responsible. The landlord is responsible for, for, for sharing that information to the local authority. So they should, they should either do it themselves or you know, get written confirmation, or, or or have that discussion with the letting agent to say, well, are you going to do this, or do I need to, and and get that clarified because you wouldn't want to assume that somebody's doing it and then it doesn't get done because obviously that's that's a risk there to compliance. So um, the, the regulations make it clear that it is well, it'd be up to the landlord to get that information to the local authority, but whether they do it themselves or through the letting agent, then then that would be a discussion for them to have and agree. Yeah, I think with the um, with the standard of work that has to be done depends how many how much work has to be carried out. Um, the landlord may give permission to the letting agent to carry out work up to uh, a certain amount of money, um, but sometimes some of these codes can be quite expen- uh, extensive and requires permit for repairs, and uh, it is difficult uh, in the twenty eight days to get. Um, uh, as is often recommended for kind of any work, getting three co- quotes for the work. And that, that sometimes it leads to um, difficulties in getting the work carried out because people want to make sure they get a, a fair price for the job. And in some cases, um, you may have the electrical inspector carrying out the EICR and they may, they may not carry out the remedial work. Then someone else has got to get the remedial work and price up to, to do that as well. So there's different aspects from it, and some people like the um, uh, the split between the inspector and the electrician, um, but they can't be the same person carrying out the work. Just uh, how how the work gets priced up, how it gets done, and what's involved with it. And then that's where that paper trail, as you as you've both pointed out, would be 
imperative. So as, as you just said, Frank, if it is different contractors doing different things, if you've got that trail with either the contractors or your lettings agent has, or you and the lettings agent, and then if you know things were to go wrong or, or you were to get picked up on it, you can demonstrate, look, we are dealing with it. Obviously you've got pandemic situations going on and so forth anyway. So having that written paper trail is, to me, seems imperative as a, as a worst case scenario, always good to cover your back. Definitely. And I think, you know, Frank touched on it, but the, the landlords, they don't have to use the same inspector and installer. I mean, some people just do inspection work um, and don't do any installation work. But, you know, the landlord has the right to take their report um, and take it to anybody to get, you know, quotes for the work to be done, the, the remedial work to be done. Um, and and as you say, as long as they've got the, the documents to, to, to append to the ICR, there is no requirement to get another fully ICR done as long as you've got the documents to show that what was unsatisfactory has been been rectified. Wonderful stuff. Okay, brilliant. In terms of moving forward then, um, to me it sounds like everything, every sort of avenue that we could have covered to bring people up to date knowledge-wise to me has been covered. Uh, is there anything else either of you two feel that you need to add that we haven't already touched base on? Yeah, there's, there's one you touched on yourself earlier on, if someone's uh, new to the, uh, uh, the rental property market and they're taking over, over the property. Um, if they've taken over a, a private residence and turned it into a rental property, now that property could have been, could have been rewired um, in, in when it was built, things like that. But if it gets brought into the rental market, the um, electrical installation certificate could have a timescale on that that doesn't comply with the PRS regulation. Now, the guidance for um, uh, domestic properties is for inspection and testing to be carried out every 10 years. Now, obviously, if you brought that into the private rental market, the 10-year period would be too long for the private rent sector. So if the 10 years exceeded, um, if you were into your sixth year since it was built, that wouldn't comply with the um, requirements of the private rent sector. You would then have to instigate a new EICR being carried out within the five-year period. So there's there's little bits like that when you change a property, it does trigger certain aspects of looking at the the certification you have for the property. But, and again, like you touched on, it's always important to retain any documentation you have in relation to not just electrical nature of the property, and any documentation regarding the property. Keep all together in a uh, folder portfolio for for the for the property. It's essential to keep any um, repair work, um, any work that's carried out on any any part of the electrical installation as as a record of what happens within the property. And there's one question that we we've been receiving a lot, which I think is quite useful just to to reiterate. And and Frank did touch touch on it earlier, but um, within the within the regulations they um, define the electrical safety standards as the 18th edition of the wiring regulations. And they have to do that. They have to refer to a particular standard. They can't just say the latest one. So that's why the 18th edition of the wiring regulations is, is, is listed in the regulations themselves. Um, but we've been receiving a lot of questions around, you know, if my installation doesn't meet the requirements in the 18th edition, does that mean that has to be brought up to that standard? Or if my EICR wasn't carried out um, it, under the 18th edition of the wiring regulations, say the EICR is four years old and it's got another year on it, does that remain valid? And the the the, the um, 
there is a sentence or two within the 18th edition of the wine regulations, which I just want to read out, that makes it very clear um, that uh, the position of existing installations. So, um, so it says in the in the 18th edition of the wine regulations themselves, it states that um, existing installations that have been installed in, in in accordance with earlier editions of the regulations may not comply with this edition in every respect. This does not necessarily mean that they are unsafe for continued use or require upgrading. So that's what, when Frank was talking earlier about the codes, that's when you'll see C3 codes most likely. So the most common example is under the 18th edition of the wine regulations, a new requirement was introduced to install non-combustible consumer units. So effectively metal consumer units rather than plastic, which we've seen. And the logic behind that is to contain a fire for longer if one was to instigate. Um, but if you have a property that is let as a landlord and you've got a plastic consume unit in there, the inspector will come and do the inspection. If that installation is, is safe and if it's in the condition that it was in when it was installed, you will not be required to upgrade that consumer unit to a non-combustible one. What will likely happen is that you'll get a C3 code noted on your EICR to say, that could be improved. There is a higher safety standard now, um, but it doesn't. Um, but it doesn't. Um, it doesn't necessarily. Uh, but you don't have to. So your 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 ERCR is satisfactory with with the plastic one in place. But if you wanted to make it safer, you can under a C three code. But you don't have to. And that's similar with the ICR. If you've had one done under a seventeenth edition. You know, as long as that EICR that you had done under the 17th edition was satisfactory um, and you haven't had massive changes to the property since that was carried out or that, you know, massive uh, like a flood happen or, you know, or, or you've noticed the tenant tampering with things in general, then it will it will last for the five years that it was given. But if it was given, as Frank just touched on, 10 years, for example, because four years ago there were no requirements to, to make it less than five, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't last the 10 years that was given on the certificate. It would need doing um, at five. The other thing to touch on that one is um, if in the ACR was carried out under the 17th uh, and it was unsatisfactory, there was no timescale requirements on that to correct the C1s or C2s on that report. So any reasonable landlord would have got them repaired anyway, but they may, if you've got an unsatisfactory report and the C1s and C2s or FIs hadn't been corrected, there's no timescale uh, under any legislation under uh, the 17th edition or under any, any legislation for those to be carried out. And that's what the PRS regulations have done. They've instigated a time period for the correction of any um, observations and defects and faults found in a property, which um, does bring it in line that things have to be corrected within a timescale. Wonderful stuff. I, I, I think that's an incredible amount of content that people are going to take away. Really, really useful stuff. And I'm sure we could talk for hours uh, about it. But it, if people want to get hold of you and find out more, if necessary, how, how do people go about contacting yourselves? So we would ask that people email us in. So email in to us. So we, we both... Frank and I can be got hold of on um, on NTA. So NAPIT Trade Association is the abbreviation 
um, nta at napit.org.uk and that's the the email address that we'd ask and we're happy to receive questions um, about you know the regulations and particular queries perhaps from from landlords on on um, on, on the regulations themselves so yeah don't hesitate to contact us Absolutely. And as usual, we'll put that email address into the show notes as well. And Charlotte, Frank, I just want to say a massive thank you for taking the time out to explain that into such a depth where I don't know, people shouldn't have any excuses not to get their, their necessary works done and up to spec, meeting the latest regulations as well. So a massive thank you uh, for both of you for taking the time out to, to explain it on the episode. Lovely to get the opportunity. Thanks very much. Thank you all for inviting us. Thank you.